Welcome back to the Millennial Pastors Podcast. I'm Michaela Johnson. And I'm Caleb Haynes. And we're your guest co-hosts for season 10. We're here having conversations around creation care and what it means to be Christian on planet Earth. Over this season, we'll be chatting with scientists, theologians, and other Christians who are doing the work of Earth care in their specific context. So we hope that this will bear fruit for you and your ministry and your work in the world. Okay, welcome back to this episode of the Millennial Pastor Podcast. Today, I'm really excited because we have a very special guest uh, with us for this episode. And Michaela and I are sitting down in the flesh with none other than A. Trey Dunning. And uh, it's a name that I'm sure everyone here is familiar with. He is Professor Emeritus of Theology at Trevecca Nazarene University, where he served as chair of the department when you were here. Most of the time. And most of the time. And holds an MA and a PhD from Vanderbilt. And as as pastor, lecturer, as speaker in numerous churches around the United States. And of course, Dr. Dunning has authored and edited numerous books on holiness and theology, Christian faith and practice, including, of course, Grace, Faith, and Holiness. So I, I see you've got like a, a an anniversary edition with you that looks really cool. Oh, this was published uh, on the 30th anniversary. Well, that is that's been five years ago. Oh wow, that is I gotta get I gotta get one of those. I don't know. You, you can order that. Okay, okay. We can do a book swap. Well, I love that. That is so awesome. Yeah, so at I believe right at ninety six years old now, you're still teaching, you're still doing the work of theology. We're sitting in the room right now where you guys have your Sunday school class, yeah. uh, which I've heard lots of great things about. And uh, I was telling Jeremy when we came in here that if I if I didn't have my own church to be at on Sunday mornings, this was this is on one of the 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 top places I'd be sitting. So um, yeah, just so humbled and grateful to have you here. So welcome, or you, you could welcome us in your space too. Either way, so <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe we could just start by if you want to briefly share a bit of your own story, and maybe a time. This could be when you were a child or a youth or an adult when you began to feel connected, I guess, to to creation more, and at least more aware of how important God's creation is for for you personally, and, and then for us as the people of God. Sure. Well, I, I think my uh, my awareness of of creation and the issue of creation care, in particular, uh basically came to my consciousness through the uh, theological study of of the image of God. As a Wesleyan theologian, I'm, of course, particularly interested in that because, uh, as, as you know, we constantly insist that our central emphasis in the Church of the Nazarene is on uh, sanctification with special stress on the idea of entire sanctification, which we uh, claim originated, and particularly in the 18th century, with John and Charles Wesley. And so we, you know, we call ourselves Wesleyan theologically. Uh, 
as a denomination, we did not start out that way. We started out with making the claim, but we didn't start out with good Wesleyan theology. But we have fortunately uh, evolved more and more into theologically and more consistently a Wesleyan uh, understanding in our theological perspective. And so, in, 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 in from the authentic, uh, pristine, uh, what other words can I use, Wesleyan perspective, uh, sanctification, which is, as I say, our supposedly our major emphasis, uh, is essentially defined as the renewing of human persons in the image of God. And, uh, and, and, and as a consequence then, that became a focal point in my study and in writing uh, Grace, Faith, and Holiness, which you mentioned, uh, I, had, I had to give uh, particular attention to that. Mm. But I had been working with it for some time. Uh, I think especially because my... Uh, my early theological interests, though immature and rather naive as they were, uh, were focused on ethics. And so, in a sense, my theological focus has been more sharply focused on theological ethics than on any other aspect of theology all the way through, uh, even into my graduate studies where I had to minor in philosophy, but I focused that on philosophical ethics, and I was able to write my dissertation on, uh, on uh, history of Nazarene ethics, which, uh, the, uh, interestingly, the, the faculty at Vanderbilt encouraged me uh, to do, uh, at least to do something that they said would contribute to my church, which was kind of an unusual kind of suggestion for a doctoral student. And, and so, in other words, focusing on ethics in connection with the idea of the image of God mm. had become a, a very significant aspect of my thinking and, and, and early work. And I developed uh, developed that in in some work preliminary to Grace, Faith, and Holiness, uh, particularly in a little book uh, which uh, InterVarsity Press published, mm -hmm. uh, entitled uh, "Reflecting the Divine Image," uh, which, oddly enough, is not still in print with InterVarsity, but has been picked up by Whip and Stock out in. Uh, Okay. Uh, in the Northwest, uh, and uh, and it is still being used in some schools as their basic theological uh, ethics text. Yeah. So that um, I no, I came I came to a rather taking too much time probably, but mm -hmm. but uh, this will be your fault. I came to a. Specific understanding of what the image of God was about, 
Uh, it's been a, a subject of interest of the Christian faith from the early days. Uh, and there's been much discussion of it, much inquiry as to what precisely does it involve. Primarily, uh, in general, up until the middle of the 20th century, the uh, most attempts at defining what it meant for human persons to reflect the image of God uh, focused on the uh, the structure of the human person. That is, the, in, uh, the people who were doing it attempted to find reflections often of the Trinity. Mm. St. Augustine in the late 4th, early 5th century right. was one of the major uh, persons involved in that. Mm. Intellect, emotions, and will. That's, all a, that's a Trinitarian part of the human person. That reflects the Trinity. So that must be what the image of God is, what it involves. Uh, but but the uh, but by the uh, middle of the twentieth century, under the influence of certain theologians like Karl Barth, mm -hmm. Dietrich, Bonh Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and uh, the uh, theologian who was martyred by the Nazis. They began to, uh, as one scholar put it, listen to the text. Instead of trying to come at it from an analysis of human personality, they were coming at it by listening to the Scripture, which is not a bad approach. And, uh, and the whole approach then began to shift uh, so that you no longer would be talking about the image of God in man, using man generically, Michaela, not, not to be offensive. Uh, you would more appropriately talk about uh, humanity in the image of God, which is a simple, subtle shift in, 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 in terminology. No longer the image of God in man, but man, generically, in the image of God. And and I first encountered this in my researches with Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a little book which he uh, uh, published entitled uh, Creation and Fall, which was a, a, an exegetical exposition of the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. And... and uh, he proposed, and it struck fire with me and resonated with Scripture, as obviously it would be since it was done exegetically, uh, that, that the image of God involves three relationships. It's not a quality that human beings possess in themselves. It's not a certain structure. It is, it is a complex of relationships within which they stand. He introduced them uh, in using, at least to some degree, the term freedom, which I discovered when I tried to use it was too easily misunderstood. Mm -hmm. uh, it involves first and foremost primarily 
uh, freedom for God, the way he put it. Mm. Uh, the problem with that is, and I know when I would share it with other theologians, they would say, well, you know, they, they took it to mean freedom is the power of contrary choice, and that way it made no sense. Right. In, a, in some ways, it made some sense, but not, you know, certainly not what it was intended to convey. So, uh, and then and then, the second relationship, as he described it, was relationship to the other. That, of course, came out of the creation of, of, of Adam and Eve as, as persons who were in a certain kind of relation of freedom for each other, clearly symbolized in the creation story by their being without clothes. They were... You know, and so, and, but, and then there was this third relationship which the term freedom did not apply, could not be used actually, relationship to creation. Mm. So, in a very real sense, that was the door that, that, that I got into, by which I got into mm. the whole idea of creation as it relates to the image of God. An essential relationship that involved what it meant to be a human being. Hmm. And the nature of those relationships, uh, we're interested, of course, here in talking about the third one, but I'll just say in passing that in, in the face of the difficulty that, uh, that I found in using Bonhoeffer's term freedom, uh, I saw what he meant and substituted the word openness, which then I found communicated. Uh, the relationship to God that was that was in the initial state of of innocence, as the traditional wording would put it, uh, was a relationship of openness with God, which, of course, existed until Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, and then there was no longer openness. I like to describe it in ways that I think have communicated to uh, lay people even. Uh, up to that point, they were able to look God in the eye. Uh, and and that, that communicates, I think, somewhat to personal relationship. Because if I have lied about you, if I have maligned you, if I have done something to undercut your personality, your influence, your work in the world, you know, normally I think I would have difficulty looking at you in the eye when I am talking with you. Mm. Uh, I can only be open if there is nothing that interrupts, as it. And of course, the same term applies in the relationship between human persons in the ideal that God intended to begin with. There is an openness with each other, which, which is incidentally, I think, why for the Apostle Paul. Uh, the concept of the unity of the church is one of the most important concepts, and it it, it uh, impregnates the, his whole epistle, all of his epistle. Mm. He's centrally concerned for the unity of the church, but that can only exist if there's an openness, if there's no chicanery going on, you know that kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I wonder if we took that. Um go a little further in that and uh 
Sure. And I think that, I think at least what I'm hearing maybe, and, and part of what perhaps has been done is a bit of that mistranslation of what it means, uh, of that term freedom or that idea of freedom with creation that has perhaps been part of what has uh, been the underpinnings of a poor dominion theology with uh, Christians and creation as a mistranslation rather than something that is about uh, reflecting this relationship that is um, more about openness and more reflective of our um, original um, our original image in God. So what I wonder what what might you or what some thoughts are on how that relationship is meant to function and particularly between us and creation and how might should we be thinking about it as a return to or a move forward, uh, if that makes sense, and 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 what we're exegeting from Genesis? Oh uh, well, let me back up just a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bonhoeffer, who used the term freedom, which I don't use, uh, except just you know describing how I got to what I got to. It's, uh, he did not use that in relationship to creation. Okay. Uh, rather, I'll get to what you said in a minute. It's a good point. Yeah. Uh, I, he recognized, as I think we have to recognize, that the relationship to creation was was a relationship of responsible stewardship, which is what the word, that is in our English versions, at least of the Genesis account, uh, embody with the term uh, domination. Uh, So that you get the idea that somehow creation is the servant of the human in, in a sense, yes, but not in the sense that it is to be used without responsible caretaking. So that, that, that actually the aspect, that third aspect of the image of God in the relationship to creation is, is essentially a relationship of responsible caregiving, caretaking. Um, which is, is, if you read the Old Testament very carefully, all the way through, you will discover that there is a, a thread of this kind of responsible caregiving for the creation all the way through the Old Testament. In the laws, in the provisions, in the condemnations for not doing so, and that kind of thing. Ah, uh, but to, to, to think about the term, as you were suggesting, about freedom or openness, as it were, with creation, is an idea that some people have been working with. Um, 
There was a book that was published some years ago. I made a good bit of use of it by, uh, I'm, I'm not clear, but, but at 96 years of age, my memory is not quite what it used to be. Sure, yeah. So I don't, I can't remember. The author's name, his last name I think was Anderson. He was a professor at Fuller a Theological Seminary in California. And the book was, was about, I think, something like being human. And part of being human, he attempted to uh, develop, uh, was having a kind of near personal relationship with creation. I think a lot of people react against that because they think about it in terms of what maybe New Age stuff, and I don't know a lot about the New Age business. Uh, and so uh, it have, ha, has not been picked up a lot, but there is an intimacy between the human and, and the creation. Now, I think that's what you're getting at, that, that, is, that is significant. Uh, and you think about, and you probably could talk more about this, one or both of you, than I could. St. Francis of Assisi, am I correct, who has talked about nature as being our brother? That kind of thing, and, and and that's the sort of relationship that that Professor Anderson, I think, was his last name, yeah. was was writing about and working with, and others have done the same thing. I have not really pursued that. Mm. Uh, it simply has just not come much within my purview. But 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 I think I think it's an important consideration. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. We, we are a part of creation, too. Mm -hmm. uh, just not a part of the uh, inanimate creation. Uh, but uh, there are certain, in, certain inanimate parts of our created being. So, so you know, it works. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I love... Um, excuse me. And thinking about, I guess, the Genesis poem and... And how God takes right a scoop of earth and breathe lump into it, and yeah. thinking about uh, matter in such a way that we are all created from it. We are literally made of earth. You know, we can talk about poetically and metaphorically, but also very tangibly. Right? We food and chemically are are now made up of earth. Uh, right in our microbiome and our in our body and our cells um we are products of of the soil in in so many ways and so yeah i think about i think about that a lot and 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 i suppose looking the other direction in in the bible toward uh you know toward uh eschatology and those sorts of things you know my mind dances a little bit around on well, what does that look like um, to to think about uh, the reconciliation of all things and resurrection and Christ's return and all of that, all that pertains to creation? And um, so, piggybacking off of kind of what you said, a lot of times there's a there's a little bit of debate in the in the creation care you know, theology of like, it, are we thinking about, are we trying to go back to Genesis or are we trying to, uh, are we thinking more in sort of 
the second coming kingdom when we think about, you know, and, and what are we grabbing from which side, if that makes any sense, and, and how we think about um, returning to something versus uh, versus going somewhere new. Anyway, I'm sort of just spitballing here, but I, I'd love to hear any thoughts to you. Well, uh, it's really interesting because uh, you, I think you've touched on really a central issue. Um, yeah, I was thinking as you were talking about uh, the fact that, you know, we eat and material stuff that becomes part of our our, our uh, physical being, that kind of thing. And if you want to take Ecclesiastes seriously, we go back to earth too. Mm-hmm. In earth, earth, ashes, ashes, dust to dust, that kind of thing. But you brought up the concept of eschatology. Uh, that, that's, that's a word that's been tossed about a lot. And of course, theologians, we talk about eschatology great deal because it's part and parcel of biblical faith uh, in, 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 in lots of ways. And it's also of great interest to popular piety. But the, the problem is, and I, I, we can work on this, in my opinion, and I think not just in my opinion, but in the opinion of many, it is the eschatology that has been so dominant among evangelical Christians that has been the source of their lack of interest in creation care. Mm. Uh, Now, that's very controversial. Uh, I I don't normally, I mean, I'm pretty open to talk about it because, like I've said, I'm retired. Nobody can fire me. <laughs> so I just talk about what I think is true, even though it's oftentimes very contrary to a lot of popular opinion. Sure. Uh, but... Evangelicals in this country in particular, and in Britain to some extent, have been so profoundly influenced by a movement that originated in the 19th century known as dispensationalism that they think of eschatology primarily in terms of escaping the creation in terms of a secret rapture, which, I as well say it, has no basis in Scripture, but emerged out of that 19th century movement uh, with a group of people known as the Plymouth Brethren, led by a man named uh, Darby, John Darby, and popularized by the Schofield Reference Bible that so many evangelicals still keep in years. Mm. The notes, of course, I made it 
very popular at a certain period. But the ultimate hope for the Christian, biblically, is not to escape the creation and go to heaven, uh, but to be resurrected from the dead and inhabit a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. So if you go, let's say, let's say to the final picture of the final consummation that you find in Revelation 21 and 22, uh, you find the New Jerusalem, which is actually a symbol of the glorified church. After all, it's, it's the bride of the Lamb, which is the symbol for the church. It is, it, we don't go up to Jerusalem, the Jerusalem, New Jerusalem comes to earth. And God dwells among his people in the restored earth forever. That's the ultimate hope for the Christian according to the scripture, which, as I say, is contrary to popular evangelical thought. And uh, I can tell you from experience that if you talk about that in the way that I just did, in certain uh, church context, you will find yourself uh, almost threatened with life and limb because it is, and, and you know, if you, if, you, uh, if you look at social media, which I do a little bit, uh, you will find that people are, are constantly talking about eschatology, in terms of the rapture, uh, and that means you're escaping this earth and going to some non-material realm where what? You're going to sit on a cloud in an disembodied state and play a harp? Well, that, that, of course, is completely contrary to the biblical concept of the human person. Where if, if you understood biblical psychology, you would understand that from the Hebrew, Biblical perspective, clearly embodied in the Hebraic views, uh, we, are, we are not a person composed of parts, but we are a unitary being, and our body is essential to our being. There's a significant difference between the, uh, the Greek concept of the body and the biblical concept of the body. We're kind of off the subject here, but this, this does, it, it does fits in. The Greek concept of the body is that the body is the principle of individuation, which means that it is your body that constitutes you an individual. The Hebrew, that is, the biblical concept of the body, is the significance of the body. It is the means by which we incorporate ourselves in the community. So it's a totally different understanding. Yeah. And, and therefore, what I'm, what I'm saying is, this concept of eschatology that envisions the ultimate consummation as being escaped from the earth is a strong deterrent to taking seriously the concept of creation care.
I mean, after all, if 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 uh, if 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 this earth and all material realities are going to hell in a basket, then what's the use in trying to care for it? I mean, we're going to get out of here anyway. Yeah. But biblical psychology, excuse me, biblical eschatology, rightly understood, clearly reinforces and sensitizes a person to be concerned for caring for the environment. To say nothing of the fact that, you know, I love my grandchildren. I want there to be a place for them to live on earth. And there might not be if we don't do something about the situation we're in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, particularly as it pertains to creation care. Yeah. How do you see our life here while we are living and breathing and acting in the world changing if we take hold of this more biblical view of eschatology rather than a escape or... Um, Letting this burn away, and we get to go to our mansion, you know, somewhere on our on our cloud. Yeah, right. How, how does that change our action in our life? Well, uh, that's it's a really a very interesting question because uh, as a as an individual, uh, realizing that you know, as Americans, we are strong on this individualism. Whereas biblically, we should see ourselves always as part of a corporate reality. As after all, as Christians, we are part of a body, the body of Christ. And as uh, as as John Wesley would say, there's no such thing as an individual Christian. We're only persons in a community, in all sorts of ways, and particularly within the Christian faith, rightly understood. But. But as an individual, nonetheless, there's only so much that I can do. Uh, there's some things that I can do. And, and I, might, I might take the position, well, what little I do. You know, I used to say that recycling recyclable materials it's just as religious as going to prayer meeting. You know, I think I really believe that. Because after all, if caring for an environment is a part of being in the image of God, then it stands, as it were, virtually on an equal footing with building my relationship to God. So anything that I can do, even though it only very minimally impact uh, the total picture is at least my part in, in, in that. So, you know, I, I, I used to say more about that, maybe unfortunately, than I do now, but I, I take advantage of every opportunity to, 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 on a solid theological foundation, to say something about it. I know... Uh, I, I receive, and one thing that one one could do is at least lend your influence. Uh, I, I just actually, almost coincidentally, maybe providentially, got an email from 
Al Gore, who is, who was soliciting me and many many others, of course, to sign up for a movement to uh, to promote what we're talking about here. Uh, I know Al was kind of looked on as a you know kind of offbeat sort of sort of guy, but but he saw it early on as uh, we are being forced to see right now that that the uh, the the crisis that we're facing is the result of human carelessness and exploitation and greed and and other factors that have brought us to apparently if the scientists are correct the brink of disaster it's a gloomy prospect to be sure yeah absolutely and i i think that's what makes it all the more, I suppose, a theological temptation for us sometimes, I think, in our in our day and age to to lean into that sort of escapism theology or to not really dip that far into that openness relationship uh, with creation that we were created in in the beginning. And and um, but like you like you say, you know, it's like. I love my grandkids. I, I you know, I, and it, it's so vital. And I, and I'm trying to remember. I don't, I don't mis, misquote you, but I, I, one of your talks to the Cambrian, right? I, you mentioned, you know, the uh, some of this and and how you know Christians ought to be paying attention to this and paying attention to climate and that sort of thing. And and I and I wonder, I suppose, how you see maybe our holiness theology intersecting and speaking to these sort of um, wasteful uh, postures and postures of overconsumption that um, are, are driving a lot of this, um, you know, as, as a holiness people or people called into holiness, right? How does this, how does this, uh, I wonder, intersect um, theologically? Well, yeah, that, that, Kind of takes us back to where I started. Okay. The fact that uh, as holiness people, uh, we are we are focused uh, or should be on what it means to to live the holy life, which of course is embodied in uh, uh, in the in, in the concept of sanctification, which I said is. Is uh, so far as Western theology is concerned, and I think so far as the New Testament is concerned, is is uh, concerned with reflecting the image of God, and we recognize that in a way. Uh, after all, uh, the uh, the uh, what word am I after? The uh, the central focus of the Church of the Nazarene is making uh, Christ-like disciples in the nation. Well, in a sense, if we understood the implication of that, that would be embodying this whole business of sanctification as the image of God because the image is, in fact, perfectly embodied under the conditions of existence only 
in Jesus of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. So, in a sense, Christ-likeness is, is, is simply a, uh, a, a way of saying the same thing. Um, so, having said that, what I'm trying to say is that, and I've made this point more than once, if any theological t- tradition should be deeply immersed in creation care, concerned and committed to it, it ought to be the holiness people. Mm-hmm. The tragedy is that uh, we have been so impacted, particularly at the lay level, with this uh, 19th century theological eschatology that I just talked about that is inconsistent with Wesleyan theology and Scripture, that it has uh, mediated against, militated, I guess is a term I should use, militated against our, our being consistent in integrating our theological perspective with our, what shall I say, our social and economic and ecological perspective. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Wow. Interesting. This is much less theologically based, but I'm interested to hear what changes you have noticed over your long life in creation and how we might interact with creation, what changes have you noticed as you have gone through the years? Uh, by changes, uh, I hope you you mean in terms of human behavior, human behavior, or maybe the way the way our green spaces look. I'm sure you've seen cities grow, and you know parks grow. It could be a positive change or maybe a negative change. But what sticks out to you about how? Humans and creation have changed over time. Well, of course, with the passing of time, there has obviously been a an increase in population. Population explosion, I guess you could say. Which... Uh, Leaders are recognizing has created major problems for uh, adequate resources of food, which obviously comes from the earth. And, and that kind of thing, as well as increasing demands for energy and other factors that Overuse depletes the Earth's resources. I don't know that you can make a value judgment about that. Uh, It's just simply, as it were, the way things are. But it's been a factor that has, you know, I remember my hometown, a sleepy little town, not too far here, I won't name it, uh, and, 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 
over the years, it's become a, partially because of the establishment of a military base there. It's become a very large, booming, busy, cosmopolitan, more or less kind of area, the, the character and nature of which has dramatically changed. Uh, but I think, I think the, the population explosion has, of the very, in the very nature of the case, created certain situations that have been. And, of course, you've got the transportation problem. Uh, that that uh, results in an increasing use of oil and so forth, the result of which is somewhat devastating, maybe quite devastating to the environment. That kind of thing. Uh, I, I'm not sure exactly how to pursue that too far with, with your questions. Good question, but yeah, I, I've been, yeah, you know, I, I spend a good deal of my time trying to, you know, connect these these dots and help other people connect these dots and and thinking more critically about our relationship with creation and um, and kind of like you've already stated that we can and do have the kind of relationship with creation that alters it right i can go out in my yard right now and make a mess or uh make it better and clean yeah. things up and, yeah. and that sort of thing and um yeah and so and but thinking about what that relationship is supposed to be like and and thinking about holiness as pursuit of this um, perfect love and um, sanctification and I just, um, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, John, John Wesley, and often I'm curious of what, of course, a lot of what's happening in the world now wasn't occurring when, when Wesley was alive. And, but we do know that he was very inquisitive, especially, especially around the natural world and, and whatnot. Um, yeah, I'm just curious of, uh, you know, this is sort of a, a fun probing question, but what you think Wesley's response today might be like uh, if if uh, he were to, to see kind of what we've done to our environment and, how, and our relationship with uh, materiality and, and, and how that has shaped our environment. Uh, but even further, right, uh, how our sanctification uh Play, plays into our relationship there. I think that makes sense. And if not, I can reword that. Well, you're, you're asking me, of course, to uh, speculate what, how John Wesley would think and act and teach <laughs> in the 21st century. Yeah. Well, you guys are related, right? I mean, aren't you? We are, we are related. Yeah. Not a student. Yeah. Uh, well, I am, you know, I, I've studied Wesley, but I, I'm not a Wesley expert. Sure. Uh, in a sense, not like certain people, yeah. some people. Uh, you know, I've studied him pretty intently, but 
Wesley was free always to address uh, uh, issues of various type that would appear that he felt like were destructive of of human happiness and human well-being, which, of course, basically identified with happiness. That's one of his major themes, as a matter of fact. He equated wholeness and happiness. But happiness is not giddiness. It, well-being, primarily, living life in full conformity to being in the image of God, primarily, that's happiness. Yeah. Uh, and so... He was he was critical of of extravagance. Uh, and in a sense, uh, using resources, the word that comes to mind is inordinate in the sense be using natural resources beyond our needs to the degree that we were depriving them from other people who did not have access to them. He, he talked about riches a lot. And uh, he would use that term in a very broad sense, I think. So I, I, I think I think he would I think he would uh, today would talk about extravagant mm. in a negative sense. Yeah, that, that I, I think would be fairly similar. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, he, he had a view. You know, he he talked a lot about money. He had three rules for money: uh, make all you can, save all you can. Give all you can. And, uh, but that's very misleading if you, if you don't understand what he meant by that. Mm. Tell us more about that. Oh, well, make all you can by the, all, the, only by legitimate means. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. Okay. By save all you can, he meant not hold your money. He didn't mean that. He meant uh, use it frugally, judiciously. Uh, spend your money not on extravagant things that that would that that was one reason that he opposed uh, uh, the use of extravagant clothes and expensive jewelry uh, for his for the the ladies, uh, not because he was against them as such but because they were an unnecessary and unnecessary expense, the use of money that could be put to use for caring for the poor and the needy. That kind of thing. Yeah. Now, another thing that comes to mind, if you don't mind me making a somewhat controversial statement. Yeah, roll out. <laughs> and, and I guess I should do this in the form of a testimony. Uh, we are, as you, as you know, uh, uh, in the middle of a uh, 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 election season. 
which I am quite interested. My approach to uh, elections is to examine the position of candidates in terms of how they relate to this issue of creation care. Mm. Uh, and and I can I can I can sympathize with people who who support certain ethical issues uh, and make them the centerpiece of their focus and their, as it were, their candidacy, that kind of thing. But it seems to me that creation care is probably, I think I would go so far as to say, the most pressing ethical issue that we have today. I mean, so what if we solve, and I'm not going to mention any, but suppose we, we, we solve and deal with creatively and redemptively a lot of the moral issues of our time and fail this one. Right. So what? Absolutely. So I, I, I think as a political question, this person who is sensitive to the seriousness and I think the, the, the theologically central dimension of this would be looking at that aspect of their political philosophy. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I, um, that, that's a, that is a huge one and something that we return to often in oh, conversations okay. and, um, you know, I'm not going to say that we're sidetracked as the people of God dealing with, you know, a, a number of different world issues because they're, they're all important. And, you know, we often laugh and we say, you know, that that's your issue. This is my issue. That kind of thing. It's hard to have more than one quote unquote issue. It, it feels, um, but uh, the more I read the science and the more I, I listen to the experts and, and look at it and, and, and the more that we see, I mean, just this week, right, you see these uh, massive floods happening in the Northeast and the incredible heat waves in the Southwest and all of this. And, and, and we say, oh, it's just another, another hundred year event. No big, no big deal. And that sort of thing. And explain away these issues and, and just sort of focus on the loudest, what feels like the loudest thing in the room for us. I, I think we're, we're going we're gonna to really miss uh, right, key opportunities as the people of God to engage in uh, what, it, what it means to uh, be, be the people of God in our time in, in, great, in great ways when it comes to creation care. But, and I think uh, I'm sure I agree with you on that. I'm interested. I think that is fantastic advice and commentary for us as Nazarenes who live in a country that gets to vote, you know, that has an election process. But there are Nazarenes all over the world and many different parts of the world that may not necessarily glean as much from, from how we can embody the image of God through our political advocacy or, you know, maybe our access to finances or whatever. Right. So how do you think the Church of the Nazarene as this 
unique and beautiful global denomination should have conversations with one another uh, when we represent such a huge portion of, you know, different places all around the globe? How can we have this conversation together? Well, far be it from me to tell the people who are in charge. <laughs> Uh, I mean, we we tend we we do tend to focus on uh, oftentimes I suspect provincial issues rather than global issues, and certainly creation is a global issue, no question about that. Uh, I think we could. Uh, I, I'm not sure that I could give advice too much along that line. I think we could I think we could take advantage of our wide reach by our literature. Uh, to uh, to impact the consciousness of, of people uh, throughout. Uh, I mean when I when I see pictures and hear stories about the poverty and 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 sometimes desperate conditions that exist on certain mission fields that we try to address with compassionate ministries. I don't see that there's a whole lot of point in trying to emphasize to them the, the issue of frugality. They, they don't have a choice. But but I think a lot of things that we're doing that I see and I'm not too familiar with with it, compassionate ministry is actually doing what you're suggesting. Mm. Uh, you know, yeah. helping with water supply, that, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know. And we have issues now in this country, too. Absolutely. That I hear about Absolutely. You know, I think about on a global scale that how in the global north and especially in the United States, we consume um, right, the majority of, of the goods that produce the majority of the emissions. And, you know, and I do think about that global scale and thinking about, well, our frugality is the compassionate ministry work for much of the global south. And, and, and that's a hard pill to swallow, and that's a hard thing to translate into our day-to-day -day lives because it is very interconnected with policies and with daily choices and companies and, and all these things. But uh, that is the, you know, that is the juxtaposition there that, that we're in, uh, I think, that, that we, we're really thinking about on a global level. And, um, well, it's, you know, uh, the... the uh... The corporations are concerned for the bottom line and appear in too many cases to be unconcerned about the implications in areas that we might be concerned about. And so uh, I think at that point you have to rely on government control to uh, to help them be more ethical about their 
relationship to the environment, that kind of thing. But once again, who am I? You know, I know. Yeah, I, 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 I got eight you in Washington. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> with I can, you know, I can, I can, I can talk to small groups that I talk to. Yeah, uh, I can, I can join uh, petitions, as it were. Mm-hmm. But so far as having direct influence, yeah, then yeah. it's it's not not available. Yeah. But I also think that it's so important to use our voice. And that's what I love about you, Dr. Dunning, is that you've used your voice and you've used it very well. And, uh, and we, and we're all uh, testaments to that, you know, and especially in our, in our um, group, the Church of the Nazarene. And that's what we're here doing today. And, and as, and as long as we can all keep talking, I think that that's so huge and, and it makes differences far beyond what we can uh, see or, or touch. Um, and I'm sure you've got plenty of testimonies over the years where people have come up to you and thanked you and said how much they appreciate your work that, you know, uh, that you've seen a lot, uh, over, over these 96 years. And that's not beautiful. Well, you can, you can certainly increase uh, sensitivity issue. Yeah, absolutely. And that's important. That helps out. Well, as we turn a corner to, to close our time, sure. is there something, uh, a last bit of something you'd like to impart on us that maybe we didn't get to, or just uh, anything else you'd like to share? Hmm. Well, I was I was thinking, uh, you know, one might raise the question, you don't, you don't have a lot of uh, direct passages in Scripture that you can report, use to, to support your views. But in a very real sense, you do. Uh, you know, as I've said, uh, Moses knew nothing about environmental care. I mean, so far as being concerned about the environment deteriorating, that sort of thing. But he knew a lot about preserving the environment. And the law is filled with guidance as to how to preserve the environment. So if you want to take the Bible seriously, you know, uh, there, there, there's a passage in the book of Isaiah, I'm not sure of the reference, that condemns people who, uh, what we today would call clear-cut forest. Mm-hmm. To, to, and we know why. Now, there, Moses, maybe, maybe would not understand that, but when it was there, uh, they were to... Uh, Rotate the crop, so to speak. Let lands lie fallow. In other words, there was definite instruction as to how to preserve the environment because that was part of what it meant for them to be the people of God. But I have a rather strange idea uh, about, uh, you know, this, again, this whole dispensational thing that I talked to. Also, uh, gets us preoccupied with the land of Israel. My, my theory is that God gave Israel that little piece of real estate because they were supposed to be God's pilot project in the world to demonstrate what it meant to serve the true and living God. And part of what that meant was to demonstrate how they were to care for the environment 
So they were given a piece of property so they could demonstrate the proper way to take care of it. Mm. Love that. That's completely different from the popular concept. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I and I think it's it's no leap from there to see uh we went into exile. And one of the big reasons for that was because, you know, we never let the land rest, never never took that Jubilee, never took that Sabbath. Yeah. 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 They never observed the year of Jubilee. Yeah, and that, there's huge environmental uh, ramifications. Oh yeah, uh, for for uh, the never ceasing uh, production um, we that we are, are trying to pull from the land as much as we can, and exploitation, exploitation. Yeah, yeah, the word. That's right. Yeah. My favorite thing I think about being in the Church of the Nazarene and being a part of a holiness people is that we get to look at issues like this holistically. And so, you know, the year of Jubilee, for example, that has major environmental ramifications, but it also has ramifications in our uh, economics and our social structure, you know, like leaving only gleaning once and leaving the edges for those who don't have their own fields to, to grow from. And so, like, what an opportunity the Church of the Nazarene might have to talk about all of these issues that we know are connected, you know, this overconsumption and economic system drives the destruction of the planet, which drives people into poverty. And the Church of the Nazarene has a really great opportunity to speak life and and speak holiness into this, but we need to be able to talk about all these issues together. And creation care is one of those, I think, where we're learning how to talk about more. So I have great hope in that. Good. Good. Well, uh, thank you for being with us. Um, one of the one of the questions that that uh, Michaela's making fun of me about now, but that uh, that we've been asking people at the end, if there's just uh, maybe something about God's creation that you uh, appreciate the most or that you love the most, that maybe you'd like to share with us, uh, be part of uh, nature. It could be a, a bird. It could be uh, anything. Uh, just something that you like. Some things that I like. Well, um, we could use the word like in the past tense. Okay. I love to fish. I love to be out on the water, alone in a boat, in conversation with a bass. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, that's really interesting. So, well, Dr. Dunning, thank you for being uh, with us this morning and taking some time. And this, uh, this conversation has truly been a treasure. Thank you. podcast was created and produced by Byron Certain and Josiah Jones. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please be sure to rate, review, or subscribe and visit themillennialpastor.com for more podcasts like it.